Hello and welcome to Health to Wealth, a series by Accor. I'm Annie Hood. This is the podcast that shows you how well-being touches every part of your life. This idea that you look at the past, but you never look forward, that in a world that changes exponentially is just insufficient. We need to be able to build a science of anticipation. Manuel Moniz is often referred to as a rising star in public policy and governance. He is provost of the IE University in Madrid, but until quite recently, he was Secretary of State for Global Spain. Over the last two years, he was one of the key players in the Spanish government's fight against COVID-19. Manuel's perspective on well-being is informed by his work, which looks at the rapid advance of technology and the positive and negative effects that can have. In this episode of Health to Wealth, you'll hear why Manuel's message on this is overwhelmingly positive. He believes that we must forge a new social contract in order to find fairer ways to distribute wealth, foster environmental sustainability, and create a more equitable society. You will also hear why being kinder and more optimistic and having more empathy will stand you in good stead in the future. Manuel, we can be ambivalent towards technology. In some ways, we embrace it wholeheartedly. Yet in other ways, we're hugely intimidated by the speed of that change. What are the main opportunities and challenges we face when it comes to digital transformation? Well, the opportunities are enormous, right? There are opportunities for the access to information, to education, to a global public debate. Uh, There are opportunities to be better connected, to connect with people that are like-minded or that share our preferences and our tastes. And, you know, we can build entirely new communities thanks to technology. There are enormous uh, opportunities in technology to navigate and tackle uh, global challenges like climate change or better governance, more transparent and more accountable governments around the world. Uh, There are enormous civilizational opportunities in the exploration of space and in the advancement of science and of knowledge, thanks to technology and the use of technology in these fields. But technology also brings enormous challenges. It brings uh, challenges when it comes to privacy, to the protection of privacy, and not just privacy, but also liberty and agency, individual agency, because on top of the collection of data and the processing of data, and if you overlay on top of that our knowledge of neuroscience and behavioral sciences, technology can lead to major, major abuses on individual agency. We now are not just capable of knowing how people behave, but we're getting to be able to manipulate how people behave as consumers, as citizens. So there are big risks in big data and in the processing of that big data through AI and other technologies and other systems. There are lots of risks uh, in the security space with the development of new offensive and defensive capabilities. You know, there are lots of risks associated to technology and its deployment in the corporate world and in the labor space and the effects that technology can have on the demand for certain types of labor and the effects that it can have on the generation and distribution of income within our economies. The list of risks is also extensive. In fact, my field of work uh, as an academic, normally it's referred to as governance of emerging technologies. 
is quite focused on how do we govern these negative externalities of technology. We do not deny, you know, the people working in this field. In fact, it is, I think, self-evident that uh, technology brings enormous benefits. But our focus is on how do we mitigate, how do we govern the negative externalities associated with very rapid uh, technological advancement and deployment. And at the end, you know, the, the future of this field will be precisely in this space where we balance the benefits of advancement with the governance of the challenges that it brings. Exactly what you're describing, this acceleration, really, in digital transformation. Is it that that has led to a greater polarisation of wealth, a more fractured geopolitical landscape? Has it all just gone too fast for us as a human race to actually respond to? Well, I think there are two issues here, right? One is a much more sort of framing issue. And I think this is one of the defining features of our era is simply the velocity of technological and social transformation. This is the backdrop to the time that we're living. You know, when you look at the evolution of world population over millennia, over centuries, you can see that the process of expansion of uh, global population really began to pick up pace, you know, in the 19th, the 18th, 19th century. If you look at the generation of data, for example, we've generated as a species, as a civilization, more data in the last two years than in the past 20,000. I mean, I was looking at some work that is being done on, on mapping brain activity uh, recently. Our capacity to map uh, activity at the neural level has also exploded. You know, so CO2 emissions in gigatons have exploded since the middle of the 19th century globally. So I, I think that on, on some metrics, key metrics, you see this acceleration. Now, this mm -hmm. poses a macro challenge, which is we're not very well built as individuals but also as communities and as societies to navigate this rate of change. One of the most clear examples of this is the limitations of our governments and our states to be as adaptive and as agile as this requires on a number of fronts. Now, the second part of your question on polarization, I think, is a consequence of this. You know, if you look at that rate of change, one of the manifestations of this is the speed and the depth at which our labor market is shifting, it's changing. You know, the types of jobs, the types of tasks that are being demanded and those that are being automated or rendered redundant is extremely quick, extremely fast. That is doing away with a large portion of our labor market. And that is leading to a polarization. In fact, it's leading to the hollowing out of the middle of our income distribution through wage stagnation and wage decline for certain types of jobs. And that has a political consequence. And if I could summarize it in one phrase, I would say the hollowing out of the center of our economic distribution is leading to the hollowing out of the center of our political spectrum. So these trends are correlated. That is highly connected to technological advancement. It's the, the deployment of emerging technologies in our productive processes and in the way our corporations and businesses work. Manuel, what could have been done that hasn't so far to have either prevented or smoothed out what you're describing? Well, a number of things. The first would be, at the same time as a lot of the job distribution is being hollowed out or eroded, particularly routine, repetitive jobs, we know, by the way, there's a lot of evidence now of the types of tasks that are being automated in the labor market. Well, one of the things that we 
could have done, I think, is to train and educate people for the types of tasks and jobs that we know are not being automated. And by the way, a lot of those jobs are connected to the types of things that I know you're going to be addressing through the, this podcast. Fundamentally, the, the underlying idea here is, well, we know lots of jobs, even white-collar jobs that we think are fairly sophisticated, tax advisory, accounting, you know, some legal work, translation services, travel agencies, things like that, but uh, that have this repetitive component to them. We know that many of these are going to be automated through AI and machine learning systems and others and advanced robotics in some instances. But we also know that one of the toughest things to automate is uh, human interaction. I mean, there, there's still, you know, a lot of value add to individuals being engaged in those activities. That's what people want. That's what these processes need. So the empathy economy is, an, is a way of capturing this cluster of jobs that basically put the individual at the center and that in order for that to be done properly, it also puts at the center other individuals working working in the sector. So these are people that will help others, you know, will help run teams. They will run coaching exercises for firms and others and uh, help in team building. A lot of the authors that have been writing about this include in the empathy economy everything that has to do with care, elderly care, uh, dependency care. You know, these... These are people that have technical skills, but above all, they have high degrees of empathy. Part of their success lies in them managing other people's expectations, feelings, uh, and emotions effectively. And that's going to be very, very hard to automate and to delegate to an AI or to a computer. I think it's going to take a long time for AI to be sufficiently sophisticated and capable to substitute hum humans in, that, in those functions. That's one example. We also know that there's a huge demand for people with digital skills, so the capacity to engage, interact in a productive way with the digital technologies and with technologies writ large, but in particular digital ones. And we haven't produced enough people with skills and knowledge in these fields. There are millions of jobs in the EU that cannot be filled because people do not have uh, the knowledge and skill. So my first answer to your question would be education, skilling, reskilling. That would guarantee that the transition to the new economy it's much less painful because we wouldn't be leaving jobs unfilled at a moment where the labor market is also shifting more broadly. But there are many, many others. You know, there, there are things related to taxation of uh, certain types of activities and digital activities, which is complicated. It's different. It's something that we need to learn how to do and enhance competition policy. We know that in, in technological markets and in digital markets, there's an oligopolistic or monopolistic force that is leading to he heavily, heavily concentrated markets. So we need to adjust and update our antitrust and competition policies to prevent uh, these dynamics from occurring. Probably we need to do a lot more and a better job at regulating labor rights in the gig economy. So there's a very long list of things that could be done uh, to make sure that the benefits of technological innovation and transformation are much more widely spread uh, and are, are just better navigated by our societies. I want to recap for a moment on some of the issues that Manuel has been talking about here because these are huge trends that are impacting all of our lives. So, technology is changing so quickly it's replacing automated jobs. But it's also replacing jobs traditionally done by white-collar workers, the middle class. Manuel's work is all about bringing to light the changes that are taking place from a tech perspective. 
to help decision makers understand how to ensure those changes don't have negative effects on how we operate as a society and at an individual level. But there are also things that you and I can do to get ahead of the curve when it comes to future-proofing your career especially. How can you make sure you're not displaced by technology? Get skilled up. Manuel has already mentioned that there are thousands of jobs across the EU that can't be filled because there aren't enough qualified people to fill them. But there's another way to keep yourself ahead of the curve, and that's to be the most human you can possibly be. I'm talking about the empathy economy. Manuel defines the empathy economy as jobs that involve human interaction. Jobs where you're managing people's expectations, feelings and emotions, just like in hospitality. There's an opportunity here to learn from the experience that hospitality has in this area. The skills that are in demand are leadership, empathy and courage, because these are the very things that artificial intelligence can't do. And that, to me, made sense when I was talking to Manuel because he exhibits those very qualities. My first impressions of Manuel were of a very mellow man who was deeply engaged in whomever he spoke to. If I could describe him in just a few words, they would be gentle, kind and humble. And you know, those are not the usual traits you'd think of when considering someone who leads or has led in a political environment. But as you'll hear, for Manuel, empathy is an essential part of effective leadership. Well, it's enormously important. To some extent, I think there are two qualities there that you've cited that I think are important for leadership. Empathy and humility, for different reasons, but they produce the same outcome, which is much more effective public leadership. And when I think of public leadership and uh, the spirit of public service, I think the core component to that is that you have other people's interests at heart. I find it very difficult to believe that you can be an effective public leader if you do not have the interest of others truly at heart, because you're always going to have to make these very tough decisions when you're putting the general interest uh, before yours. And I'll give you a very specific example. During the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, those of us that were in government or in public service, many of us had to be constantly exposed to the risk of the virus. I mean, I, I never truly confined. I mean, I was never truly locked down. I, I had to continue to move. I remember vividly, I had to go a few times to our military airport here outside of Madrid to receive the, the aid that was being sent to Spain by our allies. We had requested through NATO because we were hit very early on by COVID. So we requested aid in the form of protective equipment and masks and respirators, and these were sent to us. So, you know, I mean, I, I had a two, three-month-old daughter at home, and I was going in and out without masks, because at the time we had none, when the public, the advisory was, you should not be leaving your home, right? But you have to do these things, and, and they're, they're there constantly. And most of the time, you're also sacrificing income, and you're sacrificing work-life balance, and you're sacrificing peace of mind when you're in these roles, really, it only makes sense if you're thinking that you're making a contribution to others. Now, an, another side of that coin, I think, is humility. And I, I think this is extremely important. And I'll give you another example linked to COVID. 
nobody, no government in the world would have been able to respond to this effectively if political leaders had thought that they knew everything about, you know, virology and epidemiology and what was best. So a lot of the decisions that were made were deeply dependent on taking on external advice that was almost impenetrable in its quality, right, from a non-technical point of view. So this idea that you need to be able to listen, but listen truly and make decisions based on what other people are saying with a very limited capacity to assess the content of, of what is being suggested to you, which takes a great dose of humility. I mean, it's not irresponsible behavior. I mean, actually, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of humility to do that for a policymaker, particularly when what you're being asked to do looks like political suicide, right? Because you're being asked to restrain people from uh, leaving their homes. You know, you're being asked to take measures that are going to have a big impact on your economy, a big impact on your popularity and your capacity to win elections, you know, in the future. So, so I think those two features are are, are essential. I mean, I, I don't claim to possess them. I just think that they're essential for public leadership. Well, it's it's very moving to hear you talk about it, Manuel. It really is. Is it accurate to say the future of well-being will be driven by technology, but defined by humanity? Yes. I mean, I think that's absolutely correct. I find something in my field, you know, in, in the field of, of political science and international relations, I find something to be very curious, which is we tend to be, uh, the people studying tech and politics, we tend to be fairly negative. No, we think that these technologies have broken our public debate, particularly social media and social media platforms. They're breaking our, our liberties and our freedom, you know, through surveillance and through manipulation of individuals and of groups, etc. But this is a very defeatist way of looking at technology. And in fact, you know, democracies, liberal and open countries, have a lot to say about how technology is regulated and developed. I was looking at the data the other day because I, I was fortunate enough to participate in the Summit for Democracy that President Biden convened in December. And I sat at a, at a panel there on technology and democracy. So I looked at the numbers and I, I found out that the countries represented at the summit which are democratic countries around the world, basically accounted for about 70% of global GDP. 85 of the top 100 universities in the world are in democratic, open, liberal countries. Something like 80 to 85% of all the venture capital investment of 2020 was deployed in democratic countries, right? So why do we have this sense that we are unable to regulate and to direct technological development in a way that is consistent with democratic values and norms and that leads to individual fulfillment and well-being. I mean, I, I just, I find this view to be extremely defeatist in the face of what are, in my mind, unquestionable metrics of influence and of our capacity to determine where technology goes. So I just think we need to have a clear take on this and and to have the right type of public leadership, you know, to take technology in the right direction. You're an extremely young man, Manuel, and I've watched a lot of videos of you being interviewed previously, and that's referred to an awful lot, that you're a young rising star. And to what you've described often comes with life experience and age and wisdom. You certainly have the wisdom, but you do not have the age. What is it about your background to date that has brought you here? For me, and, and this was ingrained in my worldview 
I think fairly early on, but very particularly during my time in the U.S. I was a graduate student in the United States. I did my master's in, in public administration. But I've always felt, even before that, even though I think in the U.S. this really crystallized into a notion of public service, but but even I think before that, the the idea that with with opportunity comes uh, responsibility, that there are people in the world that simply did not have access to the opportunities that others have. In my case, I've been very, very fortunate because of the time and the place where I was born and the access I had to education and to resources and the family that I was brought up in uh, that cared for me and allowed me to do all of these things. So this sense that you have an obligation to others is very, very ingrained in my um, personality. And I I, I truly think that there's an obligation to this. And there's an emotional component to this, but there's an intellectual component to it that is, I think, significant, at least for me. The more you study inequity, poverty, the lack of access to early childhood education, early childhood nutrition and a balanced diet or healthcare, the more you realize a lot of our careers and our life is determined by factors that sit beyond our control, our individual control. It's very easy to look back at your life and see yourself as a person in the driving seat. But when you study the determinants of life's outcomes, you realize that there are all of these external factors that bombard an individual throughout their lives. And that determines to a large extent their potential and their own careers. So I'll give you a very poignant example. We now know uh, through early childhood education studies, that depending on the level of education of your parents, normally you're exposed to a very different type of household, to a very different volume of words and complexity of language. Depending on the different levels of income, some children are taken to school or pre-nursery or other types of education and activities very early on in their lives when parents can afford it and others. By the way, that by economists is considered human capital. It's a measure of human capital because it determines the brain connections and it determines your intellectual potential for life. And this is from zero to three years. That's the most important period, right? You know, so we have this way of measuring merit, which in my mind is imperfect because we study merit as a snapshot of people's lives. We look at where they are and we say, well, look, you know, you studied here, you went there, you professionally, you've done this. Business-wise, you've been very successful. But we fail to look back at all of the determinants of where they sit when merit much more than a standstill, a snapshot in a moment of time. It's, it's much more of a delta. It's much more of a metric of how much you've done with the opportunities that you were given, right? So that for me also means that if you've had great opportunity and you enjoy this slight fiction that success is, I think you have an obligation to make other people's ride better, more just. You have this deep obligation to make equality of opportunity for the next generation more present. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've been very conditioned by this. And and this is the way that I see the the world from a policy point of view is where I sit. Because I think that politically this means a strong healthcare, a strong public education system, you know, this idea that we provide equality of opportunity across the board. So I guess that the short answer is this arbitrariness of success and of opportunity of its distribution has led me 
to have this strong sense of the need to bring equity and work for others uh, if you've been given so many opportunities like I have. Could technology play a part in creating greater equity in society? And if yes, how? It's a very tough question because my initial reaction would be no. Uh, would be technology by itself, no. I mean, uh, I think this is the role of policy and the role of the norms and uh, the practices that we put in place because technology per se, if we do not determine how it's deployed and distributed, will empower ones and not others. Democracy is in play. That's part of my work, you know, to try to build these ethical frameworks and just normative frameworks around tech. Manuel's work is all about bringing to light the changes that are taking place from a tech perspective. To help decision makers understand how to ensure those changes don't have negative effects on how we operate as a society and at an individual level. But let's take a moment here to consider some of the more positive aspects that technology can bring, especially within well-being. Professor Olaf Blanke is a neuroscientist who you'll hear from in the coming weeks. Olaf works with human touch technology. His field of work is amazing. Let's hear from Olaf about the work he's been doing to increase the impact of meditation through technology. You are sitting in a chair, can be a comfortable chair. You'll have to take off your shoes, take off your socks, and you put them on something we call a haptic device. The device that we have can do three things. It can give you a mechanical stimulation if you want a massage-like pattern under the feet. And it can also give you temperature. And given the importance of water in well-being, wellness, and meditation, we have several scenarios now where the simulation of water and wetness and wave-like stimulation under your feet can be integrated with a soundscape, which is nothing than a recording that you may take on your favorite beach or something you download from the internet. And then those two scapes, a soundscape, which we're more familiar with, but also a tactile human touchscape under the foot can be completely integrated. This is to immerse you without vision to then start your meditation. So it takes you really out of the current environment and then you can have on top of this different kind of verbal guidances for meditation. It allows many of the people who have used this by now to go more quickly into more deeper and more rewarding states of meditation. It's great to hear about some of the positive developments that technology is driving from a well-being perspective. And as for Manuel, as you'll hear, he has some takeaways for you when it comes to what governments, society and business leaders could be thinking about to make sure that we're all benefiting from technology in the future. Well, the first thing is, I think our business leaders, political leaders, they should be fully aware of the fact that the world is changing very rapidly around them. This calls for a constant and recurrent exercise of foresight. We, we have to develop a science of anticipation. I mean, we need to be in a, engaged in a constant exercise of drawing scenarios, drawing lines forward of what the implications of these processes are. And we need to be able to adapt to these and not just react to these. So I think that that's one thing. And that entails constant reskilling, lifelong learning. It entails creating units within boards and within governing bodies and within PM's offices that do a lot of foresight and scenario. This is not prediction. I mean, it's scenario planning and it's just amplifying the sorts of things that you consider as possible and trying to adapt to them and trying, if you're a policymaker, 
to avoid the ones that you think should be avoided. But I'll, I'll tell you why this is significant from an academic point of view. Our academic institutions were founded, the oldest of them, at a time when the world was changing linearly, you know, in the 13th, 14th, 12th uh, centuries, uh, when traveling from Paris to Rome was basically identical to how it had been, you know, 600 years uh, before, earlier, you know? So our notion of knowledge is constructed by looking backwards. I remember when I arrived in the UK to do my doctorate, my supervisor asked me what I wanted to study. And I said, well, I want to, I want to study the direction of the European integration project and its future. And he said, hold on, hold on. Let me stop you right there. You get a doctorate by studying the past. If you're foolish enough, you try to predict the future, but that's where academic careers die, right? So this idea that real knowledge, you look at the past and you, you order the past. And maybe that gives you some insights on the present, but you never look forward because that's the realm of prediction, right? And that's fluffy and there are methodological problems with that. And I completely agree with that. That in a world that changes exponentially is just insufficient. I mean, it, this is almost sacrilege, what I'm saying, but it's just insufficient. I mean, we, we need to be able to build a science of anticipation, of trying to project our knowledge forward at the very least so that it allows us to build scenarios and navigate the different consequences of those scenarios. So that would be part of my advice to leaders. They need to be able to do that. And that entails just investments in education and in teams and in capacity for foresight. And are world leaders ready for the science of anticipation? Well, the good news is that many of them are already doing this. No, they've started doing this. Some countries have ministers for the future. Others have foresight offices at the PM's office. Spain actually just created the first strategy and foresight office at the PM's um, outfit. The UAE has one of these. The Nordics have been very active in Finland and in other places. So the answer is yes. I mean, slowly we're building these. We sort of concluded that, that that this is necessary for long-term planning, which is sort of self-evident. I mean, if you think about what it means to build infrastructure or to design an education policy, if you're not thinking of the future, you know, how do you, how do, you do these things that have implications for the next 20, 30 years, some, some of these decisions, right? Uh, but now I think it's become very, very evident that this is needed and it's becoming generalized. We In Spain, we're in the middle of an exercise now I, I was involved with somewhat to run from the PM's office to do craft a, a strategy which is called Spain 2050. And the idea is let's try to think very long term. The Singaporeans have been very active on this. So, you know, there are governments out there that are really adjusting to this. What an incredibly prescient podcast. Manuel, thank you so much. Truly, thank you. Thank you, Annie. Huge pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Health to Wealth, brought to you by Accor. Next time, you'll hear from Thierry Malloray from The Monthly Barometer. Thierry is an economist and a gifted thinker who can tell you why well-being is so important for the world in almost every way. Please rate, review and follow Health to Wealth. You can find out more at healthtowealthbyaccor.com. Accor.com.